What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Greg Hahn, recently CCO at BBDO in New York. He's currently in Brooklyn. Greg, welcome. Thank you for having me. Excited to be on this podcast. I'm a longtime listener. That is, uh, honestly, it's really surprising to hear that and heartwarming at the same time because when I see people like you, specifically you out in the world, I'm like, ah, oh, come on, they're going to be like, screw strategists. I don't want to talk to a dude who does a strategy podcast. And by the way, I have seen you out in the world once and I'm going to tell <laughs> that story. But I, I honestly am like, I don't have a lot of chief creative officers or senior creative people on this because I, my experience has been like, there's a, I feel like a lot of them don't like strategy people. <laughs> that's, that's, that may be true. It's not true with me. I think strategy is like the secret weapon of creative people. I think I, I prefer people in other offices not paying attention to strategy people because they're, they're wasting great fodder, you know, they're great information and, and input. I, I can't imagine someone not wanting that, you know, but to me, cause I'm kind of a strategy nerd. I love to think about how people behave. I was a psychology major back in, Ohio State for, for, for less than a semester, but still <laughs> I was fascinated in it. And I like to probe ideas and I find strategy people are, are really interesting. Well, and, and likewise, a lot of the creative directors, creative leads that I get on with, they're usually pretty capable strategy people as well. Uh, and, and so I, I like that overlap where a strategist might be slightly creative and a creative person might be very strategic. And the thing is, for I, I feel like they're stronger when they acknowledge that there's an overlap and enjoy that overlap as opposed to, in an immature way, push each other apart. Yeah, absolutely. I think the best creatives are inborn strategists because it always starts with, I mean, we're all aiming towards the same thing and that's a simple truth, a real truth that's going to be discovered by either the strategists or the creatives. I don't care who gets there. All we need is that truth. Mm -hmm. All right. So later in the chat, we're going to talk more about strategy and creatives and how they can work together. But I, I do want to start with you, this, this post that you, you put a beautiful post on LinkedIn because recently, like a lot of people, your employment situation changed. And I'm going to be delicate while also trying to push, but as sure. usual, I, I'm not interested in catching people out. And you, you mentioned on LinkedIn that uh, last week you got to attend your own wake. Mm -hmm. And I was curious, like, why that word wake? It was just this outpouring of feeling. A lot of it was in past tense um, to, in great support. Like, and a couple of people have said this, you don't really have people speak that kindly of you and so supportive and nicely of you until you're dead and it's too late. So this was actually kind of really beautiful. Um, and the people who have done it are just people I've worked with and people I don't know. And it was um, really uplifting at a time where I kind of was like thrown a little bit. Mm. But um, I think that post for some reason has touched a little bit of a nerve. It's gotten a lot of response. In some ways I had kind of become like this avatar for disillusionment in advertising, which I don't want to be. It's not I don't think this is a big sign about advertising. It's just, it's a once in a lifetime pandemic that we're dealing with an economic crisis that no, you know, it's taking down airlines, it's taking down entire industries. So this is just one, one more result. Mm -hmm. Having said that, you know, I think that it's going to come back in an even more interesting form and that, and I'm, I'm excited about that. I see this as a, as like a liberation of something's going to evolve out of that, that that's different than the model I was in. And I want to be the part that I want to be one who figures that out and, and leads that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and you were at BBDO in New York for over 14 years. And it, it is interesting because whether you're somewhere for 14 years or sometimes for three months, there is a certain type of death that we feel when we have to move on to something else, when we get pushed on to move to something else. And it's something to do with the death of identity, who we are, self-esteem. Talk to me a little bit more about the kind of death and i'm using it <laughs> metaphorically but what what kind of death did, do you did you feel do you feel i didn't until you just said that <laughs> no i really again the people reaching out to me made me feel like it's more than i'm more than that job you know and i think everybody has to realize that the job is you applying yourself to a role not the role applying to you you know what i'm saying so you bring that the job doesn't bring your personality you bring your personality and they can't, nobody can take that away from you. It's just how you are, how you behave. And that's your history and your, you know, you, the, the relationships you build. So all that's still there. I don't feel like there's the, the death of the part. You know, there's certain relationships that won't be as lasting because they won't see these people every day. But 
you know, advertising is a very small world. I'll keep in touch with a lot of them. Yeah, that that one. I mean, you have a different network, whether or not you're a highly, uh, you know, networky kind of person. But a lot of people are surprised at how quickly those professional relationships can close down when when they move on. Um, yeah, it's like whoa, I. And then they start to realize that their work was their identity. It was their social network. People in our industry, it's not just our industry. Maybe they met a person they married in that job yeah. and, and there's a sense of status. And, you know, I found this really interesting, more so in, in America because Americans tend to move around for jobs a lot, but a lot of people yeah, I think might, have, might have gotten out of a small town and they've got this big role in New York and like now it's not there. And it can really, it can really sting. You're a couple of weeks away from... Um, when this happened, how are you feeling now? I'm feeling fine. I, I've been energized by it. I've had so many amazing conversations with different people under different models. And I'm exploring everything from, you know, massive companies to, you know, platforms, uh, social platforms mm -hmm. to independent and people who want to start something. So I'm just, I'm just taking conversations and listening to things and trying to see what feels right and where the next thing in advertising is going to, going to go. Mm -hmm. So um, I've found it kind of invigorating. But as far as like losing the social connections, before this, I had a lot of friends and people at different agencies. So we, most of my relationships, my day-to-day -day were, of course, the people I work with. But there's also like this strong network of people in advertising that aren't in their jobs. You know, my wife was in advertising. She's freelance now. So we have friends in and out of the business. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel like that's, that's going to go away. Okay. Uh, and just to be a strategy nerd, you mentioned a beautiful phrase there, which was the job is you applying yourself to the role, not the role applying itself to you or something similar to that. Could you expand on that thought? Yeah, I think it hopefully comes across in that phrase is that you come to the job, you bring your talents, your personality, your skills, and you make that job mold to you. You're, you're in the wrong job if you have to really change yourself to, to be that. And you can tell some people there's a bit inauthenticity about some people in certain roles and it's very easy to spot, but you can tell the people who jive with it and the people who have like changed the atmosphere around them just by being there. And I think as long as you have that, that your own solid identity, nobody can take that from you. Yeah. Solid identity is a big thing because I feel like with a lot of jobs, careers, but also with a lot of long-term relationships that people often, not everyone often feel that the job and career and possibly the relationship make them, that that's their identity, as opposed to experiencing a sense of independence. And for some reason, whenever I think of these things, my brain goes to Scandinavia, just having been there and talked to people in the industry there. And it's, I'm romanticizing Scandinavia, but I, I feel like I've, I've read a little bit more about the, well, spoken to a lot of people in Stockholm and how they talk about how independent they are to the point where Stockholm, for example, 50% of the people there live, live by themselves, which will have downsides as well. But solid identity is an interesting point to make when having read a little bit about psychology and creative people, many creative people do have a solid identity, many don't, and a lot bounce around and sometimes have coping mechanisms for their brains bouncing around that aren't healthy. You've managed, you've worked with hundreds, probably thousands of creative folk, as in people in creative departments over the years. Do you think that having a solid identity is really common with people coming, coming through their 20s and 30s as, as people doing creative work? 20s and 30s, probably not. It's really hard when you're young because you are your work. And speaking for myself, when I was in my 20s, you know, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids, which I do now. And I made my work my identity. Like every piece I put out there, I still have this to some degree, is a reflection on me. So it can't be anything less than what I think is awesome, you know? So I, you know, I was really self driven. I think a lot of people are that way. No matter what the project is, it could be whatever a banner ad or a you know massive TV you know 360 campaign, it all has to be good. So there, I think creative people are this interesting mix of um, insecurity and confidence. Mm -hmm. If I forced you, which this question is going to try to, as in I am going to try to force you to work out your journey from my work is my identity to I have a solid identity that incorporates work, but it's not the end point of my identity. How did you, how did you map this? And I'm very happy that we're talking about individuation today. Big fan. I think I individuated a couple of days ago. So like, what was your journey to individuation, Greg Hound? I think it was showing that you have nothing to prove to anyone but yourself. You know, once you get past that point, the point of I'm here to prove stuff to other people and make 
you know, the, the advertising is a very competitive field and there's this feeling in advertising. It's like success is a pie, right? And when someone takes a slice of that pie, gets a little bit of success, they're taking something away from you. I think the realization with me was when I realized just because someone else is doing great, doesn't reflect anything on anybody else. That was a lesson I learned when I was really young because it was so competitive. And so, um, you know, every piece was dissected and criticized on the internet in the early days. So felt everything felt so personal and so competitive. But once I realized, you know, I, I'm probably going to be harder on myself than most people will be on me. So as long as I can make myself happy, I'm not really worried about too many, too many other things. Mm-hmm. So nothing to prove. And then realizing you're not playing a zero sum game, your mindset shifts to what some people would refer to as an abundance mindset that there's always yeah. more we can share it versus I need to snatch stuff away from you. So, and I know you have had conversations like this and manage people like this. There, there are a lot of people coming up in the industry right now. Well, first of all, a lot of people are trying to get into the industry and don't feel they can get a, a foot in the door and they feel there's a lot of uh, bias and systemic issues within the industry that's preventing them from getting in, right? And then others might just get in and they feel that they're not getting the promotion they deserve. They're not sure how to ask for it and so on and so forth. So for them to hear this journey from you several years on that you had nothing to prove, that might feel like a really distant thought to them. And and one born from privilege, how could you help someone decades before you understand this? I think that's a a place you kind of have to earn through experience, right? Because that came from... 20 years of doing the work and not to say I'm backing off on the work or anything like that, or it's just, I might, it's not about impressing other people. It's more about my own standards. So it is a, it is a privileged position in some ways, but you have to get there through hard work. You have to have enough in in your repertoire that you have a history that you can build some confidence on. You can't be cocky. You can't walk in as a junior day one and go, um, yeah, I think it's good. I don't care what you think. No, you got to learn. I think you have to earn that right. Mm. Competition. How much do you think envy has driven maybe you or potentially people you've worked with, but is there a way to generalize the type of envy that can exist within the creative departments and within, within agencies you're familiar with? I don't think envy is necessarily bad. I think it drives people. I think award shows obviously breed envy. That's kind of the purpose is to create a, a goal for someone to achieve and others to not. Yeah, again, I don't think that's necessarily bad. I think it gets bad when it starts to become your driving force, when it becomes um, malicious in some ways. You know, I've seen people try to take other people down. So I think that's the other the two sides of envy. One is you envy somebody and you try to raise yourself to their level. The other is you try to take them down to below you. And that's the bad side of envy. Uh, in your LinkedIn post as well. It's so weird talking about social posts when you're interviewing someone. It feels like yeah. it's totally weird. You, you, you have just, to link to that, by the way. <laughs> well, may, like, maybe, maybe well, people can Google it. It's totally fine. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll read it out. I just don't want to read it out while you're here. That, that no, might please do not do that. Yeah. yeah. That um, you, you use the word Spock to describe your sense of your own emotions. What are you saying in that? Do you, do you experience yourself as a, as a person without a lot of emotions or just without emotions that you display? What's, what's that about? Oh, I feel everything. I'm an epithet. Um, but I, I don't like, I'm not, I'm not someone who, I'm pretty even keeled, I guess is what I meant by that. But people would describe me as steady. Uh, I don't go off the handle too often or I don't, I don't break down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, I internalize all that. How do you do that as an empathet? Like I feel emotions often and, like, and I'm like, can I just get a year where I get to be a sociopath? I just want a year off. <laughs> I just don't want to care. I know. Uh, how do you reconcile feeling all the things and then having this steady balance with things now? Well, you know, no, nothing is 100% one way or the other. It's just, it's just in general, I run that way. I think I'm more, um, when it comes to myself, like I don't show a lot of things that when, I'm more affected by things when they affect other people. You know, like if something bad happens to somebody or someone's feeling really upset or someone's really angry, that disturbs me more than just something in brain. I can rationalize myself out of my own hysteria pretty easily. Oh, what a gift. What a gift. Why, why do you think you have this, uh, this trait that you're more read, more, that it's easier for you to feel other people's emotions than to get <laughs> caught up in your own? Where did that come from? Oh my God, you make it sound, this is uh, a very cheap therapy session. <laughs> 
<laughs> I should be paying you. Um, it's free. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I've just always been, you know, certain people are wired in certain ways. Hmm. I think that's accurate. I appreciate that you had a one sentence answer to that. Uh, I, and I, I've mentioned this before on some of the other episodes, but I did a little bit of therapy last year and I have so many stories and I just, I, every time I do it every decade or two, I just, it takes like two months just to get through all my stuff. And, uh, and then the therapist said, every time I ask you about your feelings, you tell me about someone else's feeling. And I was like, I know that that's a party trick and I bet you do that at dinner parties on the weekend, but fair point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I'm bringing that sense of personal history to, to, to this, this question. Now, you also, in this post, you mentioned 1917. I, I quite enjoyed that. Uh, and you, you cite a phrase or a, a scene where one of the soldier's good friends passes away and the commander comes up and says, doesn't do the dwell which is very British stiff upper lip <laughs> is do you, do you really feel it doesn't do to do well? Are you dwelling just a little bit right now? It's human nature, but 100% it does. It, like what good does it do you? You know, it's not, not applicable to this necessarily, but someone wrote a while back, like regret, I, think, I forget what the exact word is. Some about like regret is um, like swallowing a pill and waiting for someone else to die of poison. So is it, it's like, it's useless. It doesn't really do anything to kind of play these narratives and the ways it could have gone and all that kind of stuff. It's like, I understand circumstances and, and actually it's a change I didn't really necessarily ask for, but it's probably a change that maybe I, I should have been asking for because I think it's time in advertising that something new comes up. Mm-hmm. Okay. How did you have such a prolific and successful stint at BBDO? 14 years in one of the most award-winning and, and award-hungry, I think, agencies in, yeah. in the world. How did you do that? How did you survive? By keeping my head down, just focusing on the work. When I first got there, it was a very different culture. I got there, and it was just like a year after David, who I'd worked, David Lubars, who I worked with at Fallon. And we had a good, tight working relationship. And you know, he was charged with turning the place around creatively and also just the way the place ran culturally. So when I first got there, there was a lot of, um, it was like two different cultures. And I just kind of had my own little group and we slowly but surely built up, again, it's just building up this repertoire of work that people could point to as different. And, you know, it's always just do what you do, like focus on the work, don't get mixed up in anything else. Mm. It's funny. The I've only seen you once in the wild. It was in Cannes. I did a, I did a talk when I was at Big Spaceship, and I know Big Spaceship and BBDO had a little thing going on because there was some work that Big Spaceship did with BBDO, and then there were awards won by BBDO that Big Spaceship didn't get credit for. And I'm saying this because it was public; it was on the internet. And so I know there was like weird respect and also a little conflict there. And uh, I remember sitting at a table with people from a Cannes, and two things happened on this evening. So first of all, I was doing a talk and I hadn't had a drink for three months. I was doing a lot of yoga. I was, I was feeling relatively peaceful i mean as peaceful as you can knowing you have to do a talk on a big stage and uh a young person from cam was like blackout drunk fell asleep on me and right around then like i would say exactly then just to make this dramatic it's not but someone was like oh there's greg Hunt," and like i just saw this guy you have obviously have beautiful blonde hair and you stand out and you, you just look like this this humble nerdy guy just walking around and they're like oh no he wins all the awards essentially and i was like oh that's that didn't fit i was like what's all that about because i not knowing you really in in real life which is what really knowing someone might be about uh it didn't gel i was like oh that's interesting because bbdo i always saw as being like impenetrable and big swagger and then there was you just casually walking around the hotel uh in in can where everyone was was having uh 500 bottles of rosé except for me so that's my uh that's my greg story <laughs> What, what, what's been your experience of Cannes over the years? Pretty much that. <laughs> <laughs> Drunk people going, you're Greg Hunt? You know, no, it doesn't really match up. Um, I, I like Cannes. The first time I was ever there was that HBO year. And, you know, having watched it from afar and actually, you know, seen some of my stuff win but never experienced it live and in person, I, I thought I would hate it and I kind of hated myself for really liking it, but it's great because you do get to you do get to see people you just don't see every day. And, you know, so many connections are made and the parts that are, that are about the creativity and, and celebrating the work. I really love, there's some parts of it that are just super obnoxious, but you know, once a year, it's good to kind of do that. Yeah. I, look, I feel like it's anything. If, if someone's paying for you to go, you take what you want. There are people you will like there and there's work yeah. you would 
back there, you will learn things. You will definitely learn things. Yeah, like you just don't have to get carried away in the things that you don't think are important to you. So like anywhere, you know, like, like going to the Texas State Fair, right? Yeah. There's some parts of it I like, some I'm like, didn't need it. <laughs> Can and Texas State Fair, rarely the same similar, you know, sense. Well, maybe, maybe. So look, could we run through three pieces of work that you're really fond of? I'd love to hear how you explain them and, and how you came to them. And I know that a lot of people who would wish to do one piece of work that you've done tens of would be like, oh, I totally want to understand a piece of work. Could we run through three? Are you going to name them? Nope. You want me to? Yeah, I, yeah like I, I know. I always feel guilty that I like these interviews being self-directed and sometimes I'm like, I should prepare, but I, I just like hearing what comes out. Like It's well, like you a know, therapy session. There's a lot of strategy people listening to this. So I'll talk about ones that are interesting strategies that led to some interesting Yeah, work. awesome. Well, we'll start way back in the day when I was at Fallon, we were pitching Citibank, which was a huge, still is, a huge financial institution, not known for doing what you call bold or standout work. Mm -hmm. But Fallon had a really great approach to it. And it was um, that we're a bank that doesn't really care about money. We care about your life. And that was fresh and new. And with that insight, we did this whole campaign that my partner, Steve Driggs, and I came up with was Live Richly. And it became um, sort of this mantra and this philosophy about there's more important things than money. And it was like all these, it allowed me to really express myself in ways that did not seem corporate. I'm amazed they bought mm -hmm. some of this stuff. But what they did is they you know, took some of my inner thoughts and posted them all over New York City. <laughs> so I thought that was cool. I really loved that experience. And they were great about it. It didn't feel like it was filtered through a big bank because it, it would go against the campaign if it, if it was. So there's some like awkward phrasing and uh, just stuff you go, well, a bank said that, but that's what made it interesting. Mm -hmm. And it had a great philosophy and a lot of people connected with it. Highlight of my career when I was in my twenties was Oprah quoted one. Mm. Do you think that okay. style of campaign, that style of language, would work now? That a bank yeah. like that would buy it? I do. I think probably now more than ever because people have conversations on Twitter that are less formal. Yeah. You know, banks, brands. I think. I think. It, I think it was was a little more shocking back then because you didn't hear a brand or a personality have a, a real voice. It was always feel, felt like it came from a committee. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you mentioned that that had some kind of strategy involved with it. Was Could you talk to me about that? What was the connection? Yeah, the strategy was really uh, a bank that doesn't care as much about money as they care about the way you're living. Hmm. Um, so most financial, like, we're going to make the most of your money, we're going to make you rich, we're going to manage your money. And it's like, it's not about money, it's about what money can do for you. Dig it, dig it. All right, I like that one. Uh, you got such a long list. Like, this is probably, maybe I should have done some research. Can you give me another one? Which is the second one that comes to mind? I'll give you a really personal one. It's not like a, a huge campaign or anything. It's a single page ad. It was um, the United Airlines, their first response, like a few days after one of their planes ran into the World Trade Center. Horrible, horrible time for everyone, including um, especially the company that was so at the center of this. And their brief was, well, actually, I would, it was like, I remember this exactly. It was like a few days after 9-11. My head was spinning. I, I remember walking around just kind of numb. I was in Manhattan Beach at the time, living in LA, and just observing things. I had like this whole stockpile of observations that I, I didn't know I was making, but I, I, they all kind of came out. And I got a call from the creative director of Minneapolis because I was doing like a long distance thing that said, we have an emergency um, ad request from the, the president of United Airlines. He wrote this letter he wants it to go full page on Wall Street Journal, New York mm -hmm. Times. And it will be his first response to the, the tragedy that just happened. Mm. And the world will probably be looking to him for a response. And the problem, the, the, the advice from Fallon was, this feels really corporate and it's not time to go corporate. So can you just make this, take his letter, it'll be from him. Just make it sound a little bit more human, make it, rephrase it. So I did that, put that aside. And I was just like, what if we just did something completely different? And I wrote an ad that was just all these thoughts and feelings that I was having about the time and how the difference between the Monday before September 11th and the, the day right after. And I just wrote that down and I said, okay, I did your form letter, but uh, here's this if you like it. And then they said, we're not going to show them the form letter. We're going to run this. <laughs> so that was like really, again, it was like nice to have my personal thoughts or feelings out in the world at a time where, you know, it was, it was not time for corporate communications. Mm. 
and you know, still look back at that as a, as a mark in time. Yeah, it brings yeah. back a lot of memories. That's cool. What, what, what's lovely about hearing that as an example is it's not a Super Bowl ad. Obviously, Wall Street Journal's big, and back then, full page Wall Street Journal, yeah. New York Times, that's massive. But at the same time, the way that you're appreciating the work is it feels like a sliver. You're like, I really appreciated this little sliver as opposed to yeah. that desperation I feel a lot of people have, which is I've got to be on the Super Bowl or I haven't had a career yet. No, I think, again, I've always been more about me than than the world, other other people, I suppose. But that one's really personal to me. You know, I'm in advertising, so I, I have to make stuff that people like, but the ones that really just instantly come to mind. But as far as like the one that sort of elevated change the conversation uh, at BBDO and, you know, the way that people look at that, that work. And it's the one you guys uh, were involved in, which was HBO Voyeur. It's my first time at Cannes. You know, it was um, really a, a really seamless pro- project with the client involved. They were, they were super liberating. You know, we were writing and shooting on the same day. And the whole process was such a big learning experience, different form, different, different media different way of writing, different way of doing, telling a story. So I, I love that project because it just you know, expanded sort of the, my vocabulary of storytelling. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of projects like HBO and Skittles that Big Spaceship did way before I was there, which I was like, wow, I love this stuff. It was, it, was, it was really cool. And it did shift the way that a lot of agencies and marketers understood what was possible on the internet. And um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of good energy there. You mentioned having a partner early on. So I've got two particular questions around this. One is... There are people who don't have partners who are copywriters and art directors who would love to get into an agency role. Why do they have to often come as a pair as opposed to solo? Um, I think if you find someone you click with, it's a little bit of security. I've had tons of different partners and I've been very lucky. I've had some brilliant partners and lifestyle things don't always match up. So you don't always move around together, but I just think there's a little bit of comfort in that. And, you know, it makes the work go faster if you, one, enjoy the person you're with and ideas, you know, you understand how each other come up with ideas. Mm. So someone might wonder like, well, why can't I join the agency and have them pair me up? Which does happen, but like- Yeah, why? that happens a lot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and then well, this is probably not the correct word, but what about outgrowing a partner? You know, as a CCO, CCOs are often, usually- by themselves did you maintain a, a creative partner as a cco like how did you feel about moving into potentially a solo cco role well david lubars has been my partner since you know he hired me we've had a very open uh, relationship we bounce stuff off each other all the time we still do even to this day even yesterday we were talking so i've always felt like we could share stuff and he, i trust his judgment and his barometer and vice versa mm-hmm. so I, I i never felt totally alone and i have great ECDs, great teams. Yeah. You know, there's times when it can feel lonely, but advertising is such a social thing anyway that you're always surrounded by people. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I think with heads of strategy and also CCOs, there are different types, right? And some of them are more operationally oriented and maybe not, honestly, maybe not incredible at the craft. Others are very good at the craft and not strong operationally. And then there are varieties in between. But how much of your time as a CCO was dedicated to operations and managing people versus the next pitch, the next project and being in the work? Uh, it's hard to say. It depends on the, the time. If we're in a pitch, I'm very involved in that. And a lot of it was, you know, it's, it's part of the day is making sure that, you know, the this, this staff is, you know, is right. And, you know, it's a bit like being a baseball manager who's doing working on what and who's better with who and who's right for this kind of brief. And then just how the agency is running, which is, you know, the part that we all have to deal with when you get up to that level. It's not the part we got into it, but you know, as far as numbers and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I prefer to focus on, which I think is my strength, just mm-hmm. making the work better and making people, you know, bringing out the best in people, hopefully, creatively. Mm-hmm. This might be a naive question. It's going to be about strategy and BBDO, but like when people come to New York or maybe they were born here, <laughs> statistically speaking, I think it's accurate to say when people come to New York and they're trying to get into an advertising agency, uh, the way that other people explain agencies can be quite simple, especially to a strategist. It could be that big agency over there that's done amazing work. They're producer-led. Strategy doesn't really work there. That agency over there, it's all about account management. It's just money, mm-hmm. strategies, back office. That agency over there is creatively led. They don't really respect strategists. And there's a couple that talk about strategy where it's true and others that talk about it where it's not. And then there's a, like a couple where strategy seems to be vital and needed. 
with, with BBDO, I, I always heard it explained, first of all, with respect, and then second, as far as what someone was looking for, if they were fortunate enough to have choices that included BBDO, it was like, oh, it's, it's creatively led. The strategists often post-rationalize the work, which happens in many places, most places. Well, honestly, like 14 years in, what, what do you think the relationship between strategy creative brief writers and brand strategy, not comms planners, because I'm going to separate that. Uh, and the creative teams there, what, what was that relationship like? Well, I would hope that people would feel it was good. I, I personally did, especially in the last few years. I mean, maybe when I got there, strategy was hardly a thing, but we've grown that department so, so strong and we have great leadership there. I, like I said, as a creative, love talking to strategists. I, I do believe, you know, there's a perception that it's completely creatively led and that might be because there's not a bad relationship but just because our creatives are really intuitive you know they can come up with good strategies and sometimes what happens is we start one place and we end up another place and then it's like is this the right place to end up or do we go back to closer to the strategy and that's a discussion everybody has Mm. it's not nobody i don't feel at least when i was involved we're not shoving solutions down people's throat you know the rationale just because it's cool doesn't fly yeah yeah i mean it has to be like the thing is like what do i what i find tricks and trips up a lot of people is the idea that a a creative brief is a singular document that has to be answered to as opposed to the fact that you have teams essentially writing multiple documents that are going to form a book and so to edit one part means you might need to edit another part and that doesn't mean someone just lost yeah I also think that some people, there, there's a tendency in doing briefs is to make them so creative that they get in the way. To me, it's like, say it as boring as possible and then make it interesting. Yeah. To put you on the spot, which is what this entire interview is about. Can, can you think of a, a, what a brief said? I don't know if you used the phrase single-minded proposition or key message. Can you, can you think of one that's in public that you're like, that was uh, just right as far as the single thought mm-hmm. on a brief that led to yeah. Yeah, I'll go back to my own personal days when I was writing uh, back back in Fallon. This is one I always use as an example because it was so simple. And it's like immediately ideas came to life. And it was for Timberland. And the brief simply said, in is the enemy of out. And we did this whole campaign about this conspiracy to keep you in to this evil entity called in. And it um, resonated with a lot of people, but it was just such a simple brief. It's like, I got it. I can I can do work off of that. You know, in some some cases, brief is a bit of the idea. That was one of them. It doesn't always work that way. Yeah, I love that. Um, in is the enemy of out. That was the yeah. wow. Yeah, yeah. His, his, and the work was really fun. I, I love that campaign. I'm not even an outdoors person, but it, it actually worked for me because I was writing about the indoors. <laughs> Yeah. And here's the deal. Like there's so much lecturing going on. I guess I contribute to it, but lecturing about like what to put on a brief and what not to put on a brief in, in is the enemy of out. Here's what's confusing about that. That's almost like a tagline, almost like a slogan. It It doesn't talk about what makes the product unique. It's a belief. And I have a feeling that that these days in many agencies would not be accepted on a creative brief because it's not doing these five things that a, a thing on a brief needs to do. But the point is that the brief writer gave you something you could use. That's the yes. only point of a brief. That is the only checkbox. <laughs> usable. Could, could do everything else and not be usable. And it's new. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, it was that simple. Yes, it has the idea kind of baked into it, but it wasn't the ta- didn't end up being the tagline. And um, it, just be, it just formed the work. It told us where to go, what, exactly what we needed to focus on. Yeah. Now, and, yeah. Yeah. I, I, like I've worked with creatives who would also say that that is too far. There's too much, it's too poetic or it's not just give me something that's even more boring. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, the point to me out of that is the brief writer has to calibrate around the individual yes. team working. It, 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 ha- it has to change. You have to work out how to make it work. But like, could you see that being too quote unquote creative for some creatives where they like back off too much? Yeah, probably. Cause again, it has a bit of the idea baked into this. So not every brief has that, um, no, I think of the Snickers work, that's, that's a really strong insight, but it was shaped more by just creative thinking about the brief, which was, you know, hunger satisfies young men. You know, I forget exactly what it was, but that's always been their thing. It's like, it's about satisfying hunger. So their, their thinking was like, okay, what happens when you're hungry? What's mm. the result of the result of the result? It's kind of the way you get to a lot of interesting solutions. Yeah, there's, there's definitely work that I've seen heavily post-rationalized in strategy case studies. But yeah, the Snickers one, what, how I've read it is that for young guys, when you're hungry, you're not yourself. And that means that your, your crew are going to like, 
tease you. Basically, <laughs> you're just not going to fit in. Yeah. And so sneakers will help you fit in by curing your hunger. Uh, and it, it's funny, for, and I'm not picking on that particular project at all, but I've seen things like that where you know it's a sentence or two that got to the work and then there's like a 2,000 word case study to justify how the thinking happened. You're like, that's not what happened. Yeah, I don't not, think you should not, ever have a 2,000 case study on any piece of work. It's all you're too complicated. <laughs> but the way we like to think of it, we use the model of like a helix, DNA helix, where it's just intertwining strands. So there's no sharp line of creative idea versus planning idea. It's just they all blend together and become, you know, hopefully it comes out something that's super simple and intuitive. Yeah. Uh, one thing that surprises me still in 2020, I thought we'd move, at least where I was like, moved past this like 10 plus years ago is hearing that in, the, in some of the larger agencies, the immediate response to a brief is often expressed through a TV script versus an actual mm. idea versus a non-advertising idea, like an idea that might have an ad, but it's a bigger idea. What, what's been your experience in recent years of how creatives are naturally without say you over their shoulder responding to a brief? What formats are they using? How do you feel it's changed? Has it changed yeah. enough? It has changed. You know what I've, I've found? It's like TV comes last nowadays, and it's usually the hardest to find someone to do. Like, so a lot of people just don't know how to do TV. Mm. It's interesting. We do a lot of long form, but to get it down to 30 seconds, it's, so that's sort of shifted in the last few years, it's, uh, which I, I like because obviously um, we're doing less of it. But um, yeah, I, sometimes it's an app, you know, is the best expression of the idea. Um, you know, I've heard Rory Sullivan talk about this. I think it's a great way to approach a brief is actually like, what is the problem we're actually trying to solve? Mm-hmm. So it may be a product might solve that problem versus a piece of communication or maybe thinking about the problem completely differently than what's on the paper. So I always like to start there and not get too specific about it's open on the guy in a house, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With that problem, because I talk about that a lot as well, I get nervous that there's idealism in it. So for example, I have a feeling a lot of clients would come to BBDO because you're known for making really big campaigns and often big Super Bowl ads that might or not lead with a TVC, but like there's there's like a there's some epic thing that you're going to do for them. Uh, do you feel that you've had a lot of relationships with clients over the years that were actually open to you talking about the problem that you're trying to solve for them, and for that potentially not to be a Super Bowl ad? Are there two separate questions that we can do separate? Like, it'd be good to separate those questions actually. Like, have clients been interested in you solving problems for them, or are they really yeah. execute? I think that's evolving. I think we always have to bring that. It's one of those things that once you do it for one client, it kind of opens the door for everybody. Um, so we've done it a few times. But again, BBDO had, is fighting like a 100-year history of doing a certain kind of work, no matter what we do. Mm. Uh, so yeah, we won. When I was there, which was two weeks ago, we won uh, Agency of the Year like two years in a row and three years total for, um, at the Webby's which was you know, obviously not broadcast, mm-hmm. but we still got pigeonholed as like the TV agency. So it's hard to break that perception, but yeah. the, you just do, you break it by doing it. Yep, yep. Uh, I get a lot of younger strategists asking this question, how do I write an inspiring creative brief? And because I'm annoying, I pick on the word inspiring. I feel like most creatives that I've worked with, they might use the word inspiring every now and then. They probably wouldn't very often. Uh, they'd be aware that when they're using it, they're using an agency cliche. I, I like writing creative briefs or working with people where I'm trying to trap them. And it could be mm. with like a new piece of research, like a sentence or a quote from a piece of research or a line on a brief or some like a hand-drawn brief before I've even written it up. And, I, and it kind of comes from hearing how Marshall McLuhan uh, talks about how artists, and he borrowed this from a musician, but how artists lay traps, whether you're mm-hmm. a fine artist or a comedian or a jazz musician, you're trying to like suspend a chord and then boom oh god i didn't see that coming now my brain yeah. is infatuated what, what do you think of the word inspiring is it, is it right to try to write an inspiring creative brief or do you think there's value in writing devilish creative briefs i, I like the devilish i think it makes it has to make you feel something there has to be a tension there if it doesn't make you feel something then you it's not inspiring. i think inspiring has some weird connotations to it like i'm not gonna go march off and create a movement, which was something planners tried to try to make happen <laughs> with every brief. Yep. Um, but uh, inspiring meaning it fires off some neurons that make you think, then yes, it should do that. A lot of that comes through tension. What's the, where's the, um, the, the can I keep going back to what's the truth that makes me think about this in a way I had not thought about it before. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you know, I think are brilliant strategists is like stand up comedians because they always find that truth that nobody had thought of before and 
everybody hears it and goes, Oh my God, that's me. I totally do that. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And they intuitively do that. I think strategists, creatives need to really embrace that and think more like comedians. Yeah. That's, I think quite counterintuitive for strategy folk, especially coming up because I, f- I feel that a lot of them think they have to behave in a really serious way, at least in a big city. Some of them are just punks, right? And they're just going to say and do whatever they want. But I think there's a group of people who are like, how do I pay off my college debt? I have to dress this way, get this job and, you know, be really obedient. The stand-up comedian thing, I think super useful. Justin Lyons published a great piece of research on it um, last year. So people can find him, Justin Lyons, L-A-N-E-S.com. Like an example that that, uh, popped up in some research I was doing was I was talking to guys about losing hair and I know I've used this a lot, but a guy said to me, I don't feel accomplished enough to be bald. Mm, That's great. See, that's, that's, that's an inspired insight. Yeah. So I want to ask like, what's your, like, why are you reacting to that sentence? What's going on for you? Because there's a real truth there. Like we've, (laughs) he feels like he's getting gypped in light uh, on both ends. And the truth is we equate losing your hair with age and having achieved a certain amount in your life. And if it happens to you when you're young, it feels like you're getting robbed of the, of the um, time you got where you should have been achieving these stuff, things. It's a really human truth. And, and it's a fresh way of looking at it that I wouldn't have thought of. Mm. Love it. Love it. Love it. Um, let's talk a little about strategists and creators working better together. I know we've been circling the topic, but what do you think defines a good relationship, at least, subjectively speaking for you between a creative team and a strategist, what needs to happen? No territories. I think both of the teams need, everybody in the building needs to understand that none of this matters if the work isn't good, right? So it doesn't matter who came up with the strategy, who came up with the idea. It should all be about, is this good? Is this conversation making the work better? And as long as you're focused on that, you know, everybody has the same goal, then it becomes a lot easier to work together. What else needs to come into play to help strategists and creators work better together? Um, I think they both need to be just um, open in communication, maybe come to each other a little early in the process. Don't wait till the brief is completely finished, like bounce ideas off each other before the formal brief is introduced. Is that something, because historically speaking, there are plenty of agencies. I have a feeling that BBD was like this actually, but there are plenty of agencies where the planners were on different floors and weren't allowed to see the creatives without like essentially getting a ticket. Uh, and, and it, it ruins that informal interaction that from like a lot of things that I've, re- I was going to say research, a lot of things I've read that informal interaction, coffee, uh, the water cooler talk, for example, is often where unusual things happen. In a- 100%. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, there are different floors, but that's just a matter of architecture. It's not um, structure as far as in the way that, that we feel the department should be structured because uh, the, the floor that we're on, that we were on is on uh, the same floor as cafeteria. So people are milling in and out and around. It's very fluid and nobody works at their desk because they're sitting right next to somebody who else would be working at their desk. So open open floor plan. So some of the dynamics at play are uh, no territories. Nothing matters if the work isn't good. The question, is this conversation making the work better and then being open and bouncing ideas around one or two more? What else do you think helps a strategist and creative person work better? I should have written that down for the book. Um, I don't know, maybe maybe just um, hanging out outside of work building relationships beyond what you do during the day. Mm-hmm. Trust. Everything comes down to trust. What do you look for in a portfolio, a creative portfolio? Insights in attacking a problem in a way that goes, I wouldn't have thought of that, but it's, you know, exactly what they should have done. And the thinking behind, I mean, well executed, well executed piece of work is always, you know, kind of table stakes but the thinking behind that and how they got to that place and just some inspired someone that can bring something to the to the mix that we don't already have or that i wouldn't have thought of mm-hmm. have you seen uh, any, any trends in portfolios over the over the past decade in terms of either quality style of work things that are in them that are great things that are missing that should be in them you know a lot of case studies in these videos and these are students <laughs> you know i think they're jumping straight to the case studies and really the first thing I look at still do is like a written piece. So if it's a, a post or a print ad or a piece and out, outdoor, I'll go straight to that. Cause that's the purest distillation of how someone thinks. Hmm. And then I'll move on to some of the other things, but a lot of them just like take so long to get there. Cause it's the two minute case studies for every, every idea. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, the shift from being copywriter or art director to creative director is is often a challenging one. And we hear a lot of people talk about the challenge from going someone who is in the work, doing the work, for someone who's leading the work. How would you coach someone in, into that role? And I'd love to hear your journey into that role. Was it easy for you overnight? Did you stumble around for a few years? It was relatively easy for me. I think the, the key you have to learn, the big shift, and I've seen this in people who start too early, is that you have to learn your sense of pride in accomplishment is going to come from making other people better and not making your work happen. Mm -hmm. So you, you can't, you can't compete with your team ever. Your, your goals are now about making other people better, making other people start making their work the hero, not your work. So once you put your ego aside and it, it, it is a bit of a, a, an ego shift of like, I am this work and you're going to get all the praise to let the team shine. Let them, you know, let them have their moment and learn from you. Mm -hmm. So that's the biggest shift. For me, it came pretty quickly because it's almost had to. When I, when I agreed to move from Fallon to BBDO, I was really nervous about BBDO because I'd heard all the rumors. Not, not all of them were true, just about how the culture was kind of mean and a little bit hard to survive and somewhat political. And again, these are generalities that people place on, on agencies, so it's not... It wasn't hot. It was just what I was hearing coming from nice Minneapolis, you know, Fallon. <laughs> so I was like, there's no way. I, I, I don't know anybody there. I'm not just going blind. And I've heard such weird, horrible stories about that place. I can't work for anybody there. So the only way I take this job is if I can be my own boss, so to speak. So I was an ECD without a group <laughs> when I first started there. And then I gradually took on, you know, we want some business. We did first thing we did was for eBay, which is like a totally different kind of work for them and pulled in some different kind of people. And it just kind of grew from there. Mm. So then what about the shift for people that potentially you've managed from CD to ECD? What are the biggest shifts for them there? Well, I think you have to also learn to manage a room with a client and understand that you're not, you have to make them trust you and you have to have their best interests in mind. It can't be when you're young and you're just starting out and you have to prove, you know, your weight, you're very defensive about the work. There's a natural tendency to be defensive and just try to get stuff through. I've seen young people try to just like sneak it through, you know, pull, pull one off on the client in the room. It never works. It's not, it's never going to help anybody. It's always going to come back and haunt you. So you just have to understand that, you know, clients are there because they have a problem. They're paying you to solve that problem. They don't want to make your art. They want your work to help them. So they're, they're, they're not your patrons. You, can't, you know, young people have to really wrap their heads around that, and understand like how to deal with criticism and feedback in the room, mm. not, not let it, your emotions override the situation. Did you spend a lot of time with clients outside of presentations as you became more and more senior? Certain clients, yeah. When I was ECD, we had a uh, small group of clients that was easier to do that with. You know, there's certain clients that um, you travel. So when you go out to see them, you spend some time out of the office. On shoots was a great way to get to know clients. It's, that's really the way you see people as humans and you're, you're in this together. You're all sitting there, you know, working through things for hours and hours and hours. You see them in a way you don't see them in meetings. Mm -hmm. So I, I urge any young creative who wants to be a manager to, you know, sit with their clients on shoots. Okay. Look, as people get deeper and deeper into a career, the, the word, uh, I want to introduce the word. It doesn't come from any particular place. I want to explore it with you. The word is hack that, mm -hmm. You know, especially on some of those, and this is not about you at all. I haven't seen anyone say this about you, but like on some of those, I don't know if they still exist, but like anonymous agency forums, etc. People are like, oh, that person's a hack. Like, what? What's your take on that word? Is it like, what is it? What's it? What's it doing? Is it useful? Are you scared of that word? Like, say something about that word, Greg. That's my vague question. Something about that word. I haven't heard it in a long time, to be honest with you. I did hear it in the early days of, like you said, the anonymous blogs. It usually means someone who's just doesn't care, wasn't good at their craft, or thought they were better than they were. It usually comes with a lot of ego, you know, on the, uh, I guess, victims, quote unquote, the, of that word part. It's like usually people who, who um, put on a lot of show, but don't, don't actually, you know, have the work to back it up. Mm -hmm. Or just, you know, I, you know, what we used to hear is like young creatives saying that about their boss who changed their work. Yeah, it's, it's all subjective. Yeah. Totally, totally. All right. I've got about five questions that people have sent me to ask you from Instagram. Uh, 
curious to see how you answer these. Uh, the, the first one is from Talita Alves, and I, I, it could be because of one of the photos that you have on the internet, where you do you do look, look you do look like a rock star, right? But this is the question: uh, If your life, professional or not, were a song, which one would you pick and why? Oh, that's hard. I never thought of that. Let's address the photo. <laughs> okay. I do get a lot of comments on that. I got to change that. It's way more pretentious than I hope I am in true life. Um, I don't have a lot of headshots. That was one that um, it was actually taken during our wedding or something like that. Sort of a candid moment. It was like the one shot of me solo that I have. I was like, all right, let's just, it's mysterious. Let's put it up there. How would, you de- how would you describe it? Because I don't want to, I mean, maybe I'm going to have to. How would you describe it to somebody who hasn't seen it? It's, it's a bit like a moody art. <laughs> uh, some people, like early 2000s uh, album cover of some sort of self-important uh, moody artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, Which but, I, I, I really hope that's not how people see me, but it is how the picture is. No, so, uh, I, I would I, go. I, I, I'll fair, I, I'm, at this point, I kind of like that people uh, have a perception. I mean, that's not true. No, it's oh, it's a it's a it's a cool photo. I mean, you you do artistic creative stuff. You should have artistic creative photos that we don't all understand. I mean, it it does look a little bit like uh, the band Poison uh, matured oh, and 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 then made like a romance album. That's I was, it's, yeah, it's like the it's it's the cover to their um, ballad. Yeah, totally. Like because you you've got this beautiful. I wish I had that hair. You've got this beautiful blonde hair, and there's a lot of it, and you're kind of giving your neck a hug with your. Oh, arm. it's that one. Okay, I have two, two. There's a few. Bad. Oh my yeah, gosh. I have two bad ones. Yeah, that one. That one is totally like the poison palette. That one was taken as a headshot, I believe. But in a, in a moment where it's like, all right, just start firing shots away, and and I just picked one that wasn't too corporate looking. I guess I did the trick. So good. Just as well we are as humans more than a single photo or a single tweet or a single piece of work. That's all I'm saying in your defense there, Greg. Um, next you. question is from Sarabi Rathi. She says, or she asks, how vulnerable did you feel hitting the post button on LinkedIn and announcing your news? We're also tender right now. How do we seek help in ways that inspires meaningful conversation action versus pitiful we're here for you reaction? So how did you feel hitting posts? I don't know if you're a prolific LinkedIn user. I'm not at all. People yeah. are surprised me even on it when they sound so they was posting yeah. there. Um, you know, it wasn't a big leap for me because I got outed, so to speak, um, by ad agent campaign you know, on the Tuesday morning, the weekend before I had written that. And it was more of a response to the response I was getting. So there's a lot of safety net there. I already knew. I was really just trying to thank all the people that were saying, you know, these supportive things to me. I just wanted to say, you know, I'm hearing them and they're, they're very helpful. But, um, you know, I was going to lay low on the whole situation and just like go do my own thing. But then I get an email from uh, Creativity and Ad Age and Campaign They're saying, we're about to re- break this article. Do you have any quote for it? I'm like, God, no. So the next thing I did before they published that was like call my parents. <laughs> so um, you might read something or hear something or someone of your friends might come out to you. Not that they read, you know, advertising journals, but I figured if it's out there in public, you know, it's going to be out there. And so I got a lot of response from that and people have been great and still to this day people are reaching out and again it, it happened at such a time where it's happening to everyone it's happening to a lot of people at least mm-hmm. and it's just a really uh it's a weird time where we all kind of need to share ex- each other's experience because it's you know, it's, it's not personal but it, you know we'll feel that way yeah totally totally uh so this question has nothing to do with any of your history or the history of people you know it's just a question that came up and i have a feeling it's because you know we're seeing some statistics about what's happening in the home right now with a lot of people who are fortunate enough to be able to stay at home staying at home and like alcohol uses in, increase for example okay so there's, there's not a loaded question um the person wanted to be anonymous it's not about you or me the question is could you talk about the like your and the creative industry's relationship with drugs and alcohol with all the creative pressure that we feel thinking for a living in mind altering drugs has been on my mind lately. So this is a quote from the question. Yeah. You obviously you've been, not only have you been a can, you're in New York and you're in this industry. Yeah. What, what, what's your take on drugs and alcohol in the industry? I don't see it as a thing. I might be paying in the wrong crowds, but I don't, um, you know, people drink at events. I'm not myself a big drinker. I'm kind of lightweight. I don't, it's never been a force in or around me. I don't, uh, it, you know, I'm sure it happens more than I know, but it, you know, I'm sure it's not like the 1980s where people blowing Coke on their desk. I don't, I just don't ever see it. Maybe it's happening. I'm naive. 
Okay, okay. Uh, this one's from Karl Ducky, who actually works at BBDO in Germany. Uh, the question is this, for someone who has been as loyal as Greg has to BBDO, how do you think you will deal with trust issues that you might now have after this? Well, I think it's more about control issues. I think my next step, I just want to have a little bit more control in my own uh, you know, destiny. Because if you work for a big company like that, you are at the whim of a lot of other people that you don't even necessarily have any contact with. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're answering to boards and corporations, and they're looking at stuff determining cost versus value sometimes. So, you know, I, my, it's not about trust. It's more about just understanding, you know, control. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those, they're numbers first people often. And I guess that's how you get to have a big business that you get to control. Yeah, yeah, you know, I was surprised to learn this is a for-profit business. <laughs> no, it's, it, you know, it comes down to, I don't know. I have a lot of mixed feelings about the, the whole thing, but it, it does come back to, like, look at the environment we're in. Nobody mm-hmm. saw this coming. Nobody prepared. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one final one from Ian uh, Pardell and, and I know we've touched this, touched on this and sort of started off talking about it, but I, I want to respect the fact that Ian asked this question and see if there are new answers that you have. But Ian asks like, WTF, what happened and what's next? What happened? There's really no backstory. I mean, I'm just, I was as shocked as anyone. We all saw the, there's a large amount of budget that got cut and large amount of money that had to go away. So. Uh, again, it was uh, people making decisions. So, I, 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 I got a call. You know, what mm. you say it was not an easy call. And Dave and I have such a strong relationship, and still do. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is what it is. It's, there's no history of backstory involved. I was, mm-hmm. I was uh, pretty taken back. Mm-hmm. What's next? That's the interesting part. I don't think advertising knows what's next. And I'm really interested in finding something new. My whole thing since stepping away from this and getting a little bit of perspective on the industry. And and this isn't just particular to BBO. It's just everybody I know in my position and in other, at other agencies, it's like, it's gotten really hard and no one's having fun in this industry anymore. So my goal, my next thing is no matter what I want to have, bring the joy back into the business. You know, I want us to just be a little looser, a little more fun. I want, the work to reflect that and not have everything feel like we're playing defense so much. I think advertising and agencies and creatives need to go on the offense and, and have confidence and make stuff that you know is audacious and surprises the world. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I've noticed in some interviews I've done in the past year or so that sometimes I'm like, hang on, I know this person outside of this interview and I know how much fun we can have and how silly we can be. And the interview is deeply serious to the point where sometimes we re-record them. Cause I'm like, where were you then? Oh. And, and that's like, it could be cause my questions don't make sense, but uh, <laughs> there's definitely a vibe that I'm picking up out there. And so when someone like you and even like, you know, Rob Schwartz at TBWA, et cetera, and people who essentially have a lot to lose, who have power and who've done amazing work when they're free and able to talk, Sure, someone could go, well, they're already successful, that's why. But at the same time, it's, I don't think these kinds of conversations would have happened in public like this five years ago, let alone 20 years ago, like this one that we're having r- right now. And I cherish this stuff and I, I'm deeply appreciative of you being able to open up as best you can. Just to try to give you your day back, as in essentially to sure. end this and to tie onto that question there, you know, you, you talk about trying to find something new and the way that you end the, the LinkedIn post is that, essentially what you're thinking about now is quote unquote, what can be built. Right. How are you approaching it? Is it just a series of conversations? Are you really intentional? Are you cutting yourself some slack? Are you going to take some time off? Like how, how are you, how are you structuring your days right now? My days are crazy. Like I have, my mind spins more now than ever. Um, I've been on phone calls like four or five hours a day, just talking to different people, every model possible, even, you know, certain holding companies to independents, to production companies, you know, and I was just trying to figure out, I, I really need to pause a, a bit in my life and just say, what would I, in an ideal world, what would I build? What would I want it to be? So I've been, I've been trying to take some time to do that and then shift my conversations that way, which I've found to be a more useful, you know, um, way to handle it. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, the, since nobody knows what next month is going to look like, 
it's even even more tricky and interesting time to figure this out of what advertising is going to look like in the future. Hmm. But um, I think now's the time because the, the rules have not been written yet. So I've been talking to a lot of different people that have different models, different structures. And, um, you know, I, I'm open to exploring all of them at this point and something will kind of feel right for me and it will happen. So Greg, I really appreciate your time today. I know that you and a lot of people you know are not going through easy times and people they know are going through even more difficult times. It, it, it's hard to work through all the emotions and the practicalities of, of life for a lot of people in most of the world right now, but especially parts of the world. I appreciate you being really open and, and open to doing this in the first place. Uh, if people want to track you down on the internet, where's the best place for people to find you? Well, I guess LinkedIn now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, I don't tweet much, but it, and I don't use my real name. It's under my cat's name. It's like at, at Max Cat, two T's. Um, <laughs> so, you know, probably LinkedIn. It seems to be like a place where uh, it's the new, the new old place. That's where you're popping off. At some point, we'll see new job for Greg Hahn, LinkedIn influencer. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait for that announcement. Influencer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Greg, I really appreciate you being on Swayhead today. Thank you so much. Well, and, and thank you for having me. It's been very therapeutic. And uh, I'll send you the check. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Peace.